Hello and welcome to Notes from Musicians' Kitchens. I'm Jennifer Johnston and during this series I'll be talking to prominent music professionals about the relationship between food and music and everything in between. Notes from Musicians' Kitchens is a subscription-only online cookbook and mixology resource written by musicians from all over the world, sharing their food traditions and tastes to raise money for Help Musicians UK, a charity financially assisting musicians adversely affected by the music industry shutdown during the COVID-19 pandemic. Food is not just a universal need, but also a universal link to our homes and communities, and a universal pleasure, just like music. We rely on food in the same way that we rely on music during extraordinary times like these, to bring structure and a feeling of normality to our days, to alleviate boredom and frustration, to entertain, to strengthen the feeling of community and to bring comfort, joy and solace. Notes from Musicians' Kitchens is a means of digitally breaking bread with each other, of sharing and appreciating our diverse food cultures and of creating new memories. Please subscribe at www.notesfrommusicianskitchens.com. It's a one-off payment of only £10, every penny of which is a donation to Help Musicians UK. And you can also follow our progress on our dedicated Facebook and Instagram pages. I'm delighted that my guest this week is the fantastic Australian soprano Helena Dix, who gives a searing account of almost losing her life to COVID-19, the road to recovery, growing up as the child of a chef and getting back on stage where she belongs. Now to introduce my guest, a regular favourite at the Metropolitan Opera in New York, the mega-talented Australian soprano Helena Dix represented her home nation at the Cardiff Singer of the World competition and appears worldwide in the biggest roles in the soprano bel canto repertoire. Described as the most exciting voice to emerge from Australia since Dame Joan Sutherland, I'm delighted she now joins me. Welcome to Notes from Musicians' Kitchens. Hello, Helena. It's so great to see you and to be able to catch up a little bit after what's been a phenomenally difficult period for you. How are you? I'm really doing much better than I was. Thanks for asking, Jen. We should explain right at the outset, um, you came closest to losing your life with the COVID virus. I think maybe if we start from the beginning, perhaps it give everybody a chance to hear from somebody who really has had a very close brush with death, how serious it was. Maybe if we start at the day when you started to feel unwell, Yeah, well, I decided that I would, during the time that everyone had spoken about COVID, I just decided that I'd go in and do some emergency music teaching at some primary schools and took every precaution that I could, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and did a couple of shifts of when they needed me. And then that weekend, I I started to go downhill. I developed severe COVID symptoms. I know everyone who suffers from COVID reports that it can be quite different for them. But for me, it was basically temperature above 39 continuously. I couldn't get out of bed. I had no energy, you know, dry cough, uh, no taste, no, no sense of anything really. And to be honest with you, those 10 to 12 days were like a bad dream, if I'm honest. They were just 
you know, cold sweats every day, trying to sleep it off. And I remember thinking it was just pretty much like a bad nightmare. I, I, I could, could barely function. I didn't want to talk to anyone, which is very unlike me um, at the best of times. And also I had no, no appetite, also unlike me at the best of times. So they were ringing a few alarm bells. I spoke to 111 several times during this, these kind of 12 days. And at that stage, I was pretty much told the same thing. You know, stay at home, isolate, don't see anyone, rest, keep your fluids up. And that was it, really. And we were at the stage where people weren't really being tested. Bad nightmare. And then I started a couple of days later. I was feeling a little better. I had a little bit of an appetite, still very knocked out. Decided to go out with my dog for a little walk over to the park, just gently and got over there and felt really a, stra- a very strange sensation of not being able to breathe. And it wasn't diabolical at that time. So when I felt at that time, it was just a strange sensation of not being able to access my lungs correctly, like I knew I could. And I stood in the middle of the park with my dog and I thought, okay, Helena, don't panic. It's okay. It'll be fine. I sat down, tried to get my breath back and went home and just kind of just went home with the dog. And I thought, look, maybe it's fatigue. You know, people say that you get wiped out from COVID for months. And I always am the person who tries to get back into everything too quickly. So I came home and that evening we were eating, eating a meal. And again, I'm, I'm, I said to my husband, there's something not right with my lungs. And he said, Helena, look, you know, you've been through COVID. It's not going to be right. So don't panic. Sleep on it. See how you go. If it gets worse, obviously call the, call the medical team. So I slept on and off through the night. And the next morning I got up and I thought, okay, I don't feel so bad. I, my breath seemed to be okay. I wasn't panicking. I came downstairs and I said to my husband who was sleeping in a different room upstairs, I said, do you want a cup of tea? Came down and I kid you not, it was as quick as a, a click of your fingers. I was one minute, I was boiling the kettle and the next minute I just couldn't breathe. Terrifying. Oh, I think if you said to me of all the things that I could personally go through, not being able to breathe would be pretty much on that top of that list because there are so many things that fly through your head at that moment. And I guess not only was it the unknown of everything about the disease and and what was going on, but just also for me to not be able to do what what comes to me so naturally and what I do for a living and what I can naturally do so well was terrifying. All I remember is one minute I'm boiling the kettle. The next minute I'm thinking, okay, I can't breathe. And I couldn't call out to my husband because I, I had no breath to do so. Now, really fortunately for me, I had my phone next to me and I just called emergency straight away for an ambulance. And I was able to vaguely get out to them what I needed and they could hear that I was in trouble. And then everything started spinning. Everything started spinning. I had sweat pouring off me. Every I was dizzy. The dog was going crazy because he knew something was going on. And I sat down on the chair and I just texted the words emergency to my husband who was still upstairs. And of course, then he came running down and found me in the state that I was. And I, I remember just thinking to myself, okay, it's going to be fine. You've got this. You know how to breathe. And all I thought about between the time it took for the ambulance to get there was breathing in different parts of my body, accessing different parts of my support that I'd, you know, spoken about with coaches and 
and, and, and my singing teachers and various things for like all over the years, trying to basically throw out every trick I had in the book to keep alive. It's extraordinary, really, that probably being a singer, I reckon, saved your life. The doctors told me exactly that. When the team got to me, when the ambulance team got to me, my oxygen levels were drastically low. They got me into the ambulance. I just looked at my husband's little face and I couldn't even tell him I loved him. I couldn't do anything. You know, I was just on this oxygen mask. And I have to say the only thing that kept me calm during that time was the knowledge that I have of how to breathe, honestly. And and it was the only thing that kept me going. And I remember thinking, okay, there's something going wrong with my lungs because I because I couldn't access one side completely. And I could feel that. I could feel that I couldn't do that. And I'm, I was trying to manipulate it and maybe try and access one side. It was just terrifying. Once you arrived at the hospital, you weren't allowed anybody with you. No, no. So Mark couldn't come with me. I was on my own. They were so worried about me when I came in because of, because of my low levels of oxygen that they had the heart team there as well because... I I guess they thought that that was going to go too. And all of a sudden there's like 12 doctors all in these big masks and everyone's throwing questions at me and my, you know, my, my blood pressure's being taken. I'm being injected. I'm getting swabbed for COVID. I'm, I'm getting my oxygen supply. There's, you know, things prodded in my arm and, and cannulas there and this and that there. And all I could do was every time someone spoke to me, just, try to breathe, try to take in the oxygen that they'd given me. And the doctor's, you know, asking questions, 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 questions. And he says to me, I think you have a clot on your lungs, but we need to get scans to be sure. I need you to keep breathing and I need you to stay with us. You know, they all thought, they they told me later, we all thought it was going to go terribly wrong with you. We've never seen someone with a size clot on their lungs who, who's actually survived and gotten through. Um, I suppose there's a, but there must be a part of you that also finds it extraordinary. I guess so. I just think to myself, well, whatever it is that got me through, whether it was the, the medical team, whether it was my lungs, whether it was my breathing knowledge, whether it was my fight, whether it was a mixture, a cocktail of all those things, I'm bloody thankful, I tell you. Well, we all are too, clearly. (laughs) Once they'd found the clot, you then had to endure, I think it was two weeks, wasn't it, in hospital, all by yourself? Yeah, I was in a tiny little hospital room. I mean, I'm very grateful for the for the way that the NHS were with me at the time, honestly. But it was just a it's a crazy time to be in hospital as well. So not only was it scary because I couldn't have any friends there, I couldn't have my family there, I couldn't have any. I wasn't allowed anything physically in the room, like no objects or anything like that. So. I I literally had my phone and my charger and that was all that I was allowed in the room. And every time someone came in to to speak to me or to deal with anything that I had had going on, they would have to put on a shield and a mask, new parts of their uniform. And so nothing got done quickly and nothing was, you know, if you needed something, you really had to wait stuff out and that wasn't their fault. It was just part of the process of what needed to happen. I remember thinking... One of the worst things about it was you could never see anyone smiling and you need a smile. As, as performers, we smile with our eyes quite a lot, right? We learn to engage everything that we do. And I think regular people probably just don't do that as, as, for, you know, as, as naturally as, as performers would. Listening to the inflection of people's voices as they're delivering things to you like, oh, you nearly died. 
or this is the outcome of your situation. That delivery in a mask with no smiles or no kind of light within within what they're saying is is makes it kind of a double whammy actually. Every day I was under different kind of blood tests. I would literally have three or four blood tests a day. I had cannulas in and then several days into my stay during the night, I started screaming because I had this pain in the, in the back left side of my lung and I just didn't know what it was. And the night team are lovely, but they're just not quite as, as proactive, I guess, as the day team. I called the nurse in and I said to the assistant nurse, I said, I'm ne- I need someone, ASAP, there's something wrong. I'm in a lot of pain. And up until that point, they had given me what I'd needed, like blood thinners, et cetera. But I, I, I'd only been under very basic kind of pain medication. I, ha- I didn't need anything. But so I knew something was wrong and um, they tried to give me kind of morphine and everything. And, and I'm not a screamer, <laughs> only when I'm singing badly. Um, <laughs> but I was just like, oh, make it stop. And I could, every time I took a breath, it was just like someone had a knife and they were just carving it into my back. I couldn't get comfortable because it was on, on, on the back. So I couldn't sit up. I couldn't sit, couldn't lean against anything, couldn't sleep, couldn't nothing. And so they gave me painkillers, but I just ended up crying myself to sleep. And the next day I got sent down to all have all my scans. And yes, it had turned out that with the blood thinners, when they come into your system, they move everything around. They move the clotting around. So clotting doesn't just go. And the, and the big clot that I have they explained to me would take ages to break up and it would break up into little little clots. And the way that they described it to me is your clot is broken up and a couple of bits of it has formed a party on the back left side of your lungs and now it's infected. So that could possibly lead to pneumonia. So the pain that you're experiencing is the clotting that has formed an injection. So then I had to have another cannula put in and I had to have antibiotics pumped into me as well as the blood thinners. And I was under constant surveillance for the scanning and (laughs) never a dull moment. Um, So yeah, so that, that's basically the complication that I had in there. And then every day my task was to get them to reduce the amount of oxygen that they were giving me. So Mm -hmm. they would say to me each day, we want to gradually decrease this oxygen level. You know, when I was first in there, I couldn't even go to the toilet on my own. I I would barely be able to get up without (gasps) like having this, like an anxiety panic breath, really. So they gave me a commode and that was all pretty like horrendous (laughs) psychologically, (laughs) physically. Um, And uh, I said to one of the nurses, what happens when I need to go number two? And the nurse said to me, well, you'll just go on the and I said yeah but I can't I'm I was I was attached to all these wires and I couldn't bend like around (laughs) (laughs) this gorgeous male nurse said to me one night I said to him um if if it happens that that happens this evening uh just wanted to let you know ahead of time that uh, I'm going to need assistance and he it was so sweet he just looked at me and he went but of course that's what I'm here for and I said to him yes but um I appreciate that, but psychologically you may need to kind of, you know, prepare yourself a little bit for the full moon situation and for anything that you may have to (laughs) experience. But he was so sweet. He was just like, don't worry, 
that's just that's what we're here for that's what we do to help you and I think you know I think psychologically I got a bit of stage fright in that situation because it was many many days into my stay before that happened and eventually they gave me something to help kick it along because obviously yeah obviously there's a I don't really experience stage fright that much normally but hmm, there was obviously a little bit of that going on I was terrified more for the nurse than for myself as to the as to that experience but um but yeah so each day it was basically reducing the oxygen until then I had like a little nose oxygen filter which was a little less and that meant that was great because that meant I could walk around the room you know as I pleased a little bit again you feel like you feel a little bit like you're in jail because it's it's got this kind of glass panel on the door and you see the outside world you see people talking outside there and all the rest of it but I can't just open my door and say hello to everyone which is what I would usually do if I was in that kind of situation and so I would pace around the room a little bit when I started to feel like I could I I started to sing and I didn't care you know I really didn't care I can quite imagine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was just like, you know what? I was also curious, obviously, to see how it felt. But I was like, I've got my phone. I've got my sanity vaguely. And I was just going a little bit crazy, a little bit stir crazy. So, But this is where, certainly for those of us who were in touch with you over that period, that we were very grateful to hear that there were some amazing nurses yeah. that you had generally, not just that one male nurse. The nursing staff really did take care of you, didn't they? Oh, they were lovely. I mean, there were quite a few characters, as there obviously are going to be. I gave them all nicknames and um, sometimes to their face and sometimes behind their back. Um, I had um, one little nurse who was just hilarious. She, she just wanted to know everything that was going on all the time. So a doctor came in to speak to me. A doctor would come in to talk to me every morning about the summary of the previous day and how I was going. I remember one morning this young doctor came in and he closed the, the curtain so so the people, the nurses couldn't look in or anything. And we actually got along really well. We chatted for about half an hour, 40 minutes. He was an opera lover and, yeah, we, we chatted quite a lot about various things. Anyway, a little later on she comes in and she whips back the curtain and she says, why, why, you, why you talk to him for so long? And I said, excuse me? And she said, why you have your curtain drawn for so long? this is exactly how she spoke to me. And I was like, oh, I was talking to the doctor. She goes, yes, I know. I was trying to listen, but I couldn't. <laughs> I couldn't hear what was going on. And, and I said, well, that was our private discussion. I know, but I like to try. <laughs> and, 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 and then she would say things to me like, after a few days, my husband was allowed to send, I, I had to get my phone charger. When it first happened, I had no charger for several days and that was like a nightmare because I literally sat there for a couple of days and no one knew how I was but he'd sent up my my reading glasses and some some underwear and some various things and it was in this yellow bag and she's like what's in the bag and like I'd like committed some kind of you know crime and I said uh, oh just things from my husband why is it in that bag and I said the bag that the hospital put it in when they scanned it because they have to scan everything all the items get you know get scanned because you're not allowed to have anything so they the one the things that you are allowed which is basically reading glasses phone charger phone and and clothes they all get you know a thorough examination but she just she just wanted to know everything you know and um, it was hilarious and then of course by the end of my time by by kind of you know almost two weeks in 
and Easter had passed and I saw everyone's beautiful food at home and <laughs> there's a, an M&S in the, in the hospital and usually you'd be allowed to go and, and things like that. But of course, under these current situations, none of us were allowed down there. And I said, oh, can I, you know, can I give someone some money to go down and get me a couple of little things? No, you can't because uh, no cash is allowed. Okay, cool. Can I give someone my card? It's contactless. Just no against against company policy. <laughs> so every nurse that came in, I'd be like, "Excuse me, I'm just wondering if uh, I could transfer some money to your account, and uh, you could uh, go get me some goods." I felt like I was like, like a, dr- <laughs> a drug lord or something, and 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 it was like I was doing the worst thing ever. But you know, after all that time to not even have a bit of fresh fruit that wasn't an orange or something was just, oh, it was a nightmare. And then I found a nurse who I said to her, would you get in trouble if you went and did this for me? And she said, no, I wouldn't get in trouble technically, but it wouldn't be a good thing. And I said to her, listen, this is the, this is the, I've got cash on me. If you're happy to take my cash. (laughs) Anyway, it was like the biggest operation ever. It was so naughty, but yet so glorious. And the look on her face when she said, what do you want? And I said, I want a packet of Percy pigs. I want (laughs) some grapes and a can of Diet Coke. And that's all, that, that was all I wanted. And she was like, she looks at me, she goes, are you serious? You don't want like cake or you know, crisps or anything. I was like, no, no, no. I know I look like that. That's what I'd want to eat. But all I feel like is grapes, a little bit. Of t- like that was just all I wanted. And it was like, literally you could have played the Mission Impossible theme music in the background of while we were doing all this. It was hilarious. And she was so sweet. And she said to me, oh, some- she, she had to use her card down there, obviously. And I'd given her a tenner or something. And she said, I'll bring you your change tomorrow. And I said, listen, you can keep the change. I am so thankful to you for being my savior. And the, the, I have never tasted a grape that tasted as good as those grapes did. I cannot even begin to tell you. It was ridiculous. I think the amazing thing about this period has been it's really shown up those who really care about others and so I think that nurse deserves a big gold star absolutely absolutely I told her I kept then I kept blowing her kisses the next day through the door so every time she passed I'd blow her a kiss and she'd pretend to catch it and put it in her uniform so (laughs) I don't know which one of us was more overjoyed but oh she was my savior and then of course the recovery that you faced hasn't just been during your stay in hospital of course it's had to carry on when you arrived Mm -hmm. home I mean, arriving home, was that slightly scary? Yeah, I think if if I'm being honest, I think there was a part of me that didn't want to come home, just in a little bit of fear. But they made sure that I was a couple of days clear of the oxygen uh, that I needed. So I was functioning without oxygen. And they sent me home with injections, blood thinners. I had to take two injections a day. And the, the day before I came home, they told me this. And the, the nurse that I told you about previously, the little bossy one, she says, so you do injection, yeah? And, and I said, oh, yeah, yeah. I, I said, listen, uh, when you do my injection now, could you show me what to do? Because I've never done it before. And to be honest with you, every time someone's done my injections in hospital, I've closed my eyes <laughs> because that's the way I cope with it. And she said, oh, yeah, 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 no problem, no problem. She was so, fu- I loved her. She was so funny. She goes, okay, so 
and very blunt, as you will hear in the description of the story. She says, right, (laughs) first thing you need to do is grab the fat on your stomach. I said, okay. And she giggles and she goes, you have plenty, no problem. (laughs) I said, uh, ah, thank you. Yeah. Okay. But she was so charming. You know, she didn't mean it rudely. You have plenty, no problem. Okay. Right. She's like, then like a dart go. And she like (laughs) injects it in. And then she says, and now we count. And she counts backwards from 10. (laughs) 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. And she takes it out. I'm not joking you. She did this every time she injected me. I mean, it was just like comedy every time. And I said to her, why are you counting? She said, well, I want to make sure that it all goes in to make sure that you've really you've got, got all the fluid in, in you. And I said, why do you count backwards? She looks at me, she goes, I don't know. It's, so <laughs> it's just like so funny. And uh, I was just, I was so amused by her. She really made me laugh. And she says, are you going to try? And I said, I think I should watch you first because I've never seen the needle go in. So I'd like to, you know, watch. And so, yeah, that was fine. And then the next morning I was, I was going home and she came in to give me my morning injection. <laughs> she says, okay, are you ready? Now we try together. And I was like, okay. And, and I looked down, she says, put your finger here. I put, and I started to shake, like just, just instinctively, I was shaking all over. <laughs> she says to me, huh, Maybe it's best you sit down when you do it because you're a big girl. If you pass out, you're in big trouble. Oh, bless. <laughs> and she was this tiny little pocket-sized thing. Oh, she, she really made me laugh, really made me laugh. But she was right. I was, my, my, my knee-jerk reaction was just to shake everywhere. Mm-hmm. And now I'm two months in and I'm still having to inject myself twice a day. That nurse and her comedy is actually how I've managed to get through my injections. Every time I give myself an injection, I sit down, I grab my excessive tummy fat, as she would say, <laughs> and I give it a little dart and then I go, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. And it just, it takes away the pain because it's bloody painful and it just helps, you know. And your breathing's obviously back to normal, at least it sounds it. Are you feeling, would you say, 100% by now? Yeah, look, I think think it's pretty back to normal now. I do have little moments where it hasn't been great or something's gone a little wrong. From what I understand, the clot that I had because of the size of it is going to take months to clear from my body. In the first kind of four to six weeks, I actually really could feel sounds really odd, but I could feel it. I could feel where it was, like it would be at different points, the, the, a bit of clotting, and I knew where it was because it was quite painful. But, you know, when I came home after a few days, I sat at the piano and sang something that I would sing, you know, just, just literally for a warm-up every time I sang, and I couldn't even sing a bar of it without having to breathe. And I think that was when, like, the stark reality hit me, you know. I was like, oh. And I sat there and I thought, okay, what, what do I do now? I thought to myself, you know what, Helena, you've got two choices here. You can either ignore it and just wait for it to heal and cry yourself to sleep every night or you can invest in everything that you already know about breathing and about how to make it better 
you can swallow your pride and every day you can work a little bit more, you know? And so it was like starting again. It was, it was bizarre. It's like you have all the tools there. It's like when an athlete has, a, has an accident or something and has to retrain and go gently and, you know, everything. It's exactly the same thing. But it mortified me when I first opened my mouth like mortified me. And I felt like I'd been run over by bus because it just, it's so exhausting to even try. You feel so helpless. You know, you're like the one thing that I know I do well, I now can't do well. And I guess because, because recovery is so different for everybody. So when you leave the hospital, you say, well, how long is it going to take? And how long until I can sing again? Do you think? And how long until no one can answer those questions. So in true Helena spirit, I figured, you know what, if it's up to me, then it's up to me. And I started with Marchese vocal exercises, something I haven't done not for constructive exercise, not in a constructive form. Maybe I sing them from time to time to be healthy and to be good, but, but not, not because I really actually need them, you know, to work on my breath control. I haven't done that since, you know, I first started training. So it was back to that. Interesting though, eh? because... Although you say you you know, have to reinvest in everything I already knew, the fact is, it's that stuff that kept you alive in the first place. Yeah. And I find that fascinating in one sense, because I think a lot of people who are not singers do not appreciate, firstly, how much training goes into what we do physically, yeah. not just the actual singing and the learning of arias and all of that, but that we are people who know our bodies very well and can generally cope with quite a lot. You know, most of the time we have to sing if we're unwell even. We won't sing if we're very unwell. There's a, I always think of it in percentage terms. If I'm, if I'm 70%, I'm fine. Mm-hmm. So if I'm 60%, that's when you start to question whether you should be doing it or not. Absolutely. Um, but in reality, those techniques, those back-to-basic techniques are what we all need every day. Absolutely. And, 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 and what we, I don't think we take them for granted, but as you said, there are so many years of training that go into all of this for us. And, and then you hit a point in your career when you're an old fuddy like me (laughs) and, and you, you don't take it for granted, but it's just there because you've, because you've worked at it, you know, because you've gotten it to that point you know, and, there, and there's a beautiful feeling in that. And of course, when we're, when we're revising n- new roles and learning new roles, we're, we're rediscovering and of course we're working on our breath and, and everything like that. But, but when you can't even sing a bar and you just, it really, it, it hit home. It goes Jesus. to show as well how fragile we are really. Um, we like to think of ourselves as strong human beings. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and there, and Story there but also I, I find it fascinating sometimes when you look at people's stories and you can have a year where somebody can have extreme highs and extreme lows and you've had that. I mean, there you were making your debut at the Metropolitan Opera not very long ago. And now this, it, it goes to show you never know what's coming around the corner. That's absolutely um, true. Absolutely. Has it given you a sense of freedom though? I mean, you speak to people who've survived all sorts of things, whether it be you know, a car accident or whatever. And, and very often they talk about the feeling that, well, I've been through this pretty awful experience and I've come out the other end and it's done something that has some sort of freed me up because it's made me determined to live my life fully. Is that how you feel? 
You know what? I think that's really difficult to answer only because of the situation of the industry at the moment. Mm. I I feel like once I'm back on the stage again, that the answer will probably be of a similarity to what you're what you're saying. I feel blessed in some ways to have the time to be able to do it and not feel rushed, you know, on one hand, because you know, none of us are working. But on the other hand, yeah, I I, I think I think I'd be able to answer that better once I'm back on stage. Mm. I've already been through cancer myself um, and that was a few years ago. I came out of that with a bit of a vengeance. I came out of that with a, whoo, okay, let's do this life thing. Great. But this has been psychologically, this has been really quite different because it's affected me not only psychologically and as a whole, but it's affected me directly where it matters most as far as my breath and my singing. And I feel like with other things that I've been through physically, mentally, whatever, you can mask certain things, right? And you can mm-hmm. adapt and construct and get around it. But when you have your breath taken away, poof, you kind of can't. So I feel like this has been a much more direct hit. And yeah, I guess, I guess the one joy I can bring from it, Jen, is that now, like eight weeks into my recovery, I feel like I've really earned my place back again. I feel like I've I've worked every day at that piano. And now when I sing an aria, I feel like, like, yes, like I really, I feel like just on a personal level that I've really earned the joy of doing that, I guess. Oh, I completely understand that. Also interesting because I, I think the difference with being a singer and an instrumentalist is because our voices are produced by our bodies and they're within our bodies, we have a much more personal relationship with our voices than even an instrumentalist will have with their violin or their Mm -hmm. oboe or whatever. They're so part of us and part of our personalities that it's inevitable that there will be a a longer-term sort of effect from everything you've been through. Mm. That said, I think the industry is in a terrible state Um, we're all aware of that but the fact that we're and you are now able to carry on singing is a deep joy certainly for those of us who know you well and um what I'm hopeful is that you will start to feel ready to maybe do some recording do you feel how do you feel about performing now I mean do you feel ready I've been approached by several people for certain kind of charity projects and things like that and some I've said yes to and some I've said no to so recently, um, Freelance Artist Relief Australia, who I know, I know you spoke to, Nicole, I, I promised that whoever made a donation the week that I did my my little bid for them to help them, that I would record them an aria. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got a list of people who donated. And just this week, actually, I recorded an aria for, for the winner. They were so surprised that I'd done it so soon and everything, but I was comfortable and I was happy to do so. I knew the piece quite well and it was from home and, and all those kinds of things. I recently got asked if I would do um, a digital concert recital with a, a, a couple of my other colleagues, but it it had some it had some restrictions on it. So they wanted kind of really quite big repertoire. They wanted Norma actually. Oh, and all the, all the big, all the big duets and core and trio and everything. And I thought to myself, okay, yeah, okay. Well, let's see what happens. And I, I went through it all and I, you know, the, the problem is that I can't 
not give everything and that's the problem and you know and I know we all give everything but I know you I guess... you are particularly somebody it has to be said who throws themselves into everything wholeheartedly yeah and, I and, think that's, and that's really yeah. why I was asking you because I know that you're somebody that does that and it's quite hard for you to hold back Yes. And so, yes. Um, and especially in a role that I've done and experienced and felt and already have all those primal instincts of, you know, what, mm. what I, what I do with it. I, so I, I kind of thought, oh, okay, I'll give it a go. And I, oh, I, I, t- I can't tell you, I was singing it through and I was like, Whoa, oh, you know, like thinking that it was just glorious. And then I got to the end and I just, I was so tired, you know, oh, and, and I, and I, and I thought to myself, okay, it's doable, but only just. And actually, uh, my problem, Jen, at the moment is that because of the the backlash of COVID and everything at the hospitals, I've not had my follow-up scans yet. And uh, my follow-up scans are really imperative to understanding how I've healed and what my <laughs> progress is. And mm-hmm. I thought about it and I thought, Helena, are you really going to travel into London, go into a concert hall, do a digital recording that may take quite several takes to do and give yourself, give of yourself everything and then put yourself at risk of actually taking several steps backwards just because you love to sing Norma. Well, I think the answer should be no. And I had to give myself a bit of a slap on the wrist and say, you know what? You need to calm down. You're already doing a whole lot of stuff to try and get better. You know, I'm, I'm doing big walks every morning and I'm, my resting heart rate in hospital was dramatically high, obviously because of everything I've managed to lower that by about 40, you know, so, um, and that's just by exercising and and being a bit healthier and, and getting out and really working my lungs in the best way possible. And of course, you know, being at the piano every day, but in a steady, steady way so there are certain things that I need to go nope and then certain things that I that I am saying yes to and that I am kind of starting to step back up and like recording certain arias and and doing certain things like that Wexford I'm, I'm doing one for their gala later this year great um and I've offered uh, a few charity people have come forward and asked me to do a few things which I'm you know I'm I'm happy to to do as much as I can well, obviously, I was very grateful to receive a recipe for you from from you for notes from musicians' <laughs> kitchens. Yes, and wow, what a recipe! Um, how do you feel about eating? I mean, you said that your appetite disappeared with the virus. Do you mm-hmm. feel like you're able to eat properly again? Oh, don't you worry about that. Okay, you know that that came <laughs> as soon as as soon as as soon as hospital food ceased. I that was back that was back in uh, in full vigor. No, actually, Hubby and I are on a bit of a, a health kick as well, just to just to make life easier for everybody. And so we're on um, one and a half thousand calories a day at the moment. And um, so that gorgeous recipe that I that I sent you would yeah, she won't be making that right now. No, absolutely <laughs> not. No, 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 no. Um, I should say in case anybody's not seen it. But if you choose to make um, confectioner's custard stuffed declares covered in chocolate, yeah. um, I don't think that qualifies as a sort of diet food. No, <laughs> I think one of those would be my entire calories for the day, I would, I would probably think. Probably. Yeah. It, interesting, though, because when you were writing the recipe down for me, uh, you texted me and you said, gosh, I've got something in my eye because of the personal connection that you have to not just that recipe, but food in general as the child of a chef. And I I think it's worth pointing out that for you, food has all the hallmarks of family attached to it. All the hallmarks of love. 
and therefore um, as an Australian quite hard therefore to be away from your family at this particular time has your mum promised to cook lots of amazing things for you the next time she sees you she she has totally rubbed it in that she's cooking for the rest of the family. Can I just tell you that? I mean, what a horrible <laughs> individual. Because um, my I, we've had all kinds of things going in my family recently. Um, uh, my nephew uh, he's he's got a young baby and he's working full time and, and 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 working very hard. And my niece um, has just had her second child in the last couple of weeks. And so my mother, in typical, in typical Norma Dex fashion, is cooking for the army of, of uh, the family. And, and quite often she leaves it out on her, on her porch in little containers for everyone. She's like, oh, I did a little cook-up the other day and I just cooked uh, this, 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 and this. And then, you know, they can put it all in their freezer and, and on they go. And I, and I go, uh-huh, thanks, mum. So and mean. She's like, oh, it'd be so much easier if I lived closer, wouldn't it? Or if you lived closer, maybe you should move home. That discussion happens every day. I get, maybe you should just move home, Helena. That would be so much easier Aww. for, you know, and especially obviously this last thing with my health gave her the fright of her life. So, sure. um, you know, that's, that's all she, all she thinks about at the moment. But, um, but in uh, terms of, in terms of the, the food she has been cooking though, um, what kind yeah. of thing does she make that you particularly love? Oh, God. I wouldn't even know where to start. I mean, my mum used to own restaurants and I grew up in the back of the kitchen. So even though my brothers are much, my brothers are much older than me, sorry, I should say, and it was just mum and I from age five onwards, so single parent raising, my mum didn't like to leave me with anyone and that was like one of her strongest philosophies. So she'd say to me, you will come to work with me and you will sit in the back room, whether it's with the garbage or in the office or whatever it is. It sounds harsh, but it's absolutely not. And I was just, I was always with her and I was always part of everything. And I, I can't even tell you how wonderful it is growing up in the back of a kitchen. It sounds disastrous, but you, you see all the chefs and you see what they're creating. You see all the prep work. You, you watch them design a menu. And my mum was the kind of boss that even though she owned the restaurant and even though she was incredibly, you know, qualified and everything, she, she supported her chefs from, from the back. So she would do all the hard work and let them be at the front on the front line and I really admired that about her as a businesswoman as well she wasn't out there flaunting around she was doing the hard work in fact ironically she owned the business but she was doing the dishes you know and supporting mm. her chefs and cutting up all the prep work and she always says to me you know Helena it's a successful business if if you as the boss can be a team with whoever you need to be a team with and that was installed in me from from quite a young age and I think in a kitchen, you also need to be a team if you're running it together, you know, in the sense mm -hmm. of a restaurant or whatever. And she would say to me, you watch the best, the best guys that we've had in this, in this, in this kitchen and the way that they work together, you know, and the way that they bounce off each other and the way that they create food and the way that they test food. And so from a young age, I was top and tailing bags of beans because not because it was child labor, slave labor, but because I wanted to, because I, you know, sat back there and I was fascinated with everything that went on. My mum's specialty, coming back to your question, is cakes. 
So she was a dessert chef. She used to do all the cakes for like recipe books and things like that when she was younger. And uh, her cakes are incredible. And a lot of the, 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 the dessert that you have, that I, the recipe I gave you is actually a semi-creation of hers, really, putting it all together. I mean, obviously, you know, shoe pastry is already a thing and confectioner's custard is already a thing, but putting it all together. And she had all kinds of different things like that that were incredible. And she would do the cakes at home and then she would bring them in and there would be a huge display. And I, I just loved watching customers come in and literally drool at the sight of her desserts. <laughs> and, and, um, she had this little slice, really simple caramel slice, but when it was done fresh, ah, oh, so good. We used to have customers that came into the restaurant and it's like a bar restaurant kind of type thing. And the, there was this one man, I'll never forget it. And he comes in, he goes, I'd like a coffee but only because they come, the coffee comes with the caramel slice. And, and the manager was like, okay, so can I buy the caramel slice se- separately? The manager said, no, you, you have to have it with the coffee. It comes with the coffee. He said, in that case, I would like six coffees. He said, but, but don't make the coffee. So Just put the, put, I, I'm happy to pay for them. Just put them on the plate, please. He said, I need these in my life. <laughs> and it, it just, you know, made me laugh. But, uh, oh, gosh, it was, it was incredible growing up around so many incredible chefs and, and cooks and, and idealists and, and they would discuss food, they would argue about food and then bringing it home to the family. I was an auntie from age 11 and I was an auntie six times over and so there's 15 years between my brothers and I. So from age 11 I had these, all these kids around and that's all we knew there would always be a tribe of people eating at my house. And quite often it would only be a few hours before a meal time. They'd all ring up, mum, can we come over? We bring the kids. Mum, can we do this? Oh, how many have we got? Oh, can I bring a friend? Oh, can I, you know, like incredible. The, what my mum could whip up in, in such a short time. And she'd say to me, Helena, recipes are great, but you've got to think on your feet when you're a good, when you're a good cook. You've got to be able to open the fridge and say, what can I create today? And she'd do so much of that. And every single one of my friends, I'm convinced that they were friends with me 30% because they liked me and 70% because they liked my mum's cooking. Because <laughs> every single one of them, she knew their favourite food. She knew what they liked, what they didn't like. They'd come to get a feed. One of my friends, lasagna was his thing. My mum would make this wicked lasagna. And she had a couple of different Italian chefs and they'd all argue because in all the different places in Italy, they'd have a different kind of magic ingredient that they'd have in their lasagna. One would be peas. Uh, That was one of them. And I remember another chef had egg and bacon layered through the cheese sauce in, in the lasagna. And that was the one that stuck. So we we do hard boiled eggs and crispy bacon through each Ooh, of the lining. That oh, sounds unbelievable! Oh my goodness, so good. And so now that's how I make my lasagna because of that chef that had come from a different region in Italy, and that had been their particular you know mm. magic ingredients. And I'll never forget actually my my best my very best friend is Italian the Australian family. And when uh, we were growing up in college, she's a pianist. And when we were growing up together, I went to their house and they served me this incredible pasta, all homemade by the mum. The mum and dad had come from different regions in Italy. And so she gives me this lasagna and I put it in my mouth and I was like, this has got peas in it. And I said, wow, that's really weird. You know, because I hadn't, at that point, I hadn't tasted lasagna with peas. 
And and then it started this argument between them. And he's like, yes, it is weird, isn't it, Helena? Peace shouldn't go in lasagna. But in Margaret's place of Italy, that's what they put in. They put in peas. Uh, I started a family war. I can't I can't even tell you. Yeah, all of a sudden there was this discussion about peas in the lasagna and, you know, many, many years on whenever I go back and I, and I see them, we, we bring this up just to, you know, just to, just to push that family over the edge a little bit. How are you finding dropping calorie intake though? I mean, it, has it, for somebody that loves food, has it been a struggle to, to do that or do you feel motivated because of what's happened to you? Both, definitely both. I, I've always carried weight. It's, it's part of who I am and it's, it's a part of my stuff to do with my cancer is the fact that I've got this hormone imbalance and, and all the rest of it. But you know what, Jen, it's, as you said, it, it, food is such an important and loving part of, of, of my life. The calorie stuff is difficult, but typical Helena Dix, if you give me a challenge, I want to, I want to take it. <laughs> I want to take it. I want to run with it. And I want to do like so well with it that like, I've just gone off into the distance. So, so uh, I've got an app and I'm literally logging every little bit of food, you know, into it. Um, and just learning, I have done Atkins before. Um, and so, but that was like very high in protein and fat. And this is a completely different thing because I'm not trying to diet. I'm trying to change my lifestyle around. I'm trying to get healthier. I think diet itself is a really horrible word and a word that just, pushes people over the edge and makes people do things in short term that seem to work, but in long term don't. And so for me, it's more about I'm home. I've had a health scare. It's time to get healthier. It's time to just change my outlook on my eating around a little bit and be challenged by it and take the challenge, you know? And is there anything that you've particularly enjoyed that you've discovered that you quite like? No. Not at all. Um, no, I'm joking. The tricky thing in our world, in our society, is that people are very judgmental about you if you are not skinny. Yes. And I find that extraordinary. I'm not skinny myself, so I'm used to the comments and doesn't mean to say I approve. Um, we live in such a strange society because it, if you go and have... 10 people tested across the board for all sorts of readings. Um, sometimes the skinniest people are the least healthy anyway. Um, Absolutely. It, it's, it's got to change, I think. The perception of what it means to be fat. You can be fat, in, in inverted commas, and like you, have a hormone imbalance. Or, mm-hmm. just, like me, be very, very tall and broad and heavier than, you know, somebody who's, you know, half my height and... Um, certainly not my build. There's, there's just these weird, weird perceptions. And, and it has to surely be all about health. It's really fascinating, I find too, because when I went, obviously when I had this attack in the hospital, one of the doctors quite openly said to me, and when you came in and we saw that you couldn't breathe in the way you were, and we saw that you were, and then he stopped. And I went, fat, is that what you were going to say? And he said, oh, well, uh, well, well, yeah, well, we, we saw that you were quite big and we... Uh, and I said, and you assumed what? And he said, oh, well, we assumed that your heart wouldn't hold out and we assumed that this, 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 this and that. He said, but actually, he said, Helena, if I'm honest, he said, you've got a much healthier heart and your body is actually incredibly resilient, far more than we expected. We, 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 we never would have thought with your size and with what was happening that actually that you'd A, survive, but B, that you'd actually, your vitals would all be 
quite healthy and kicking. So I found that quite interesting. <laughs> and because you're right. also, I think, I think as an industry, we've also got issues. I think opera should be a mirror of the society in which we live. It shouldn't just be the preserve of skinny white people. And I feel quite strongly about that. And I think that, that it needs to swing back to being about talent and about capacity to communicate with an audience, not about whether you are a size eight. It therefore is quite interesting when you hear stories like yours, because it all just goes to show that everything's been so media driven. Um, and and we, I think as a collective group of people, we have to say, no, no, that's enough now. Um, yeah. You have to let us be who we are and you have to allow us to still perform, even if we're not, you know, a, a skinny white person. And, and hopefully some attitudes will start to shift. We have to hope. Well, I think even with the current climate, with what's going on, in the sense of um, racism and, and and these things, we're seeing a shift of mm. of certain things that people feel very strongly about not being accepted anymore. And I think that you're right in opera, whether it's the colour of their skin, whether it's how tall or short they are, whether it's how fat or thin they are. I had one casting person once tell me, Helena, I got asked by the director to hire the tenor, not with the best voice, but with the biggest hands for the role of Rodolfo. Yeah, because hands are so important, aren't they? They are really, aren't they? Yeah, mm-hmm, yeah. It blew my mind. It actually blew my mind. And I thought, you know, I've always been... I've always been at the heart of every conversation about, you know, we're not going to cast you because you're too big or, you know, and, and, you know, some people have, have invested in me and loved me and other people haven't. And quite mm. frankly, I say to those people who haven't, it's your loss because, you know, at the end of the day, just because I'm a big girl doesn't mean I can't move well. Just because I'm a big girl doesn't mean I can't be convincing. You know, you can't tell from me standing still on a, on a, on a, in a room how I'm going to perform on that stage. You know, you can't tell that. So, you know, I got told once by an opera company many, many years ago, if you're not under a size such and such in your dress, we will not hire you. It baffles me. I understand that there are certain roles that people would laugh if I played them, but I'm, I'm, but, but, but I'm happy to admit that I, I I'm not going to sing Violetta and look like I'm dying of consumption. I, I, I get, that. I'd laugh. <laughs> I would look yeah. at myself. No, and I, you know, I can understand with, that yeah. with, with ample bosom and 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 rear to match. You know, obviously, <laughs> obviously there ain't no you know ain't no going out like that. So those things, of course, I completely understand. But it just it just makes me. It makes me so angry when I hear things like that. I've got a friend of mine who, who was a baritone and he's given up now because he was slightly shorter and Korean and he got told at various points uh, that, that they wouldn't hire him basically because of that. And, and, so, and it's all related, isn't it? It's all related. And, and you just think and it's just that things like that just make me so incredibly angry. But I also feel <laughs> there are some companies that have said, oh, no, we wouldn't because, you, you know, you don't really look very acceptable or you know and then you move your way up the ladder and then you sing at lovely places and then all of a sudden they're welcoming you back with open arms and and then you can say well (laughs) I remember a little something you know and and it feels lovely to be able to do that but no you're right I think the industry I think the industry is remarkably capable of change They, they you know we have a lot of things going on at the moment which means that that people are listening to each other and it depends on those people in power doesn't it really 
in terms of that, in terms of the the industry's capacity for change, all we have to hope for is that it all happens now. Um, because what we really want is to go back to work at the end sure. of the day. If you did go back to work tomorrow, what, what would, is it that you would want to be singing? Queen Elizabeth in Roberta Devereux, without a doubt. Because I lost three of them this year. LA Opera asked me to jump over and take over for their season. And I couldn't get the visa in time to go. And then COVID happened just as I was discussing also going over to Italy and taking over one of their productions. And then I was supposed to sing it with Chelsea Opera Group this year as well at Queen Elizabeth Hall. So definitely, definitely Elizabeth, just because I missed out on her so many times this year. And at the moment, it's probably my favourite role to be singing. What is it about her that you love so much? She was so feisty and so fabulous and such a brilliant representation of a woman who would just not give up until the very end. So that in itself is so diabolical to play and her character traits were both hilarious and devastating all in one. And I really feel like no matter what production I'm doing and no matter what the director wants, I feel like I've already captured so much of her in the way that I'm able to do able to do it vocally you know what I mean so in the in the in the journey that she takes throughout the opera there's so much light and shade and texture and there's coloratura and there's devastation and there's you know fireworks and and I just love it it's just it's it's got everything that inspires me to sing in the score and therefore that would be my my first choice Thank you to Helena for joining me and giving such a searing account of almost losing her life to COVID-19, the road to recovery, growing up as the child of a chef and getting back on stage where she belongs. Please support Notes from Musicians' Kitchens by subscribing to our website, www.notesfrommusicianskitchens.com. It's only a tenner and every penny is going to help Musicians UK a great cause. Make sure to tune into the next episode where I'll be talking to another music professional about what food means to them. Keep an eye on Instagram to discover their identity. Thank you for listening. Stay safe. And remember, food is love.